So welcome everybody to our second special event with Andreas Gomez and Dr. Robert J. Gilbert for the Oxford Psychedelic Society. Uh, my name is Ali Reza Omidvar and I'm the event officer for the Psychedelic Society. So just a few housekeeping things. Um, make sure to mute your microphone so that the speaker view doesn't get changed. And all our, all our events for the Psychedelic Society are free, but if you would like to donate, uh, our IT officer will drop the PayPal link in the, in the chat, in the chat box. And uh, our chosen topic for today is good vibes, the harmonics of psychedelics and energetic healing. Our intention for organizing this event was to explore the vibrational and geometrical aspect of states of healing and emotional and mental balance and to see if there are any commonalities between different modalities of healing, in this case, between psychedelic therapy and energetic healing. So we're gonna start with a biography of our speakers. Andreas has a master's degree in psychology with an emphasis in computational models from Stanford and a professional background in graph theory, statistics, and effective science. Andreas was also the co-founder of the Stanford Transhumanist Association, and the first place winner of the Norway Math Olympiads. His work at QRI ranges from algorithm designs to psychedelic theory, to mapping and studying the computational properties of consciousness. Dr. Gilbert has a multifaceted background in both spiritual and scientific studies. He is a former US Marine Corps instructor in nuclear, biological, chemical warfare survival. Since leaving the service in 1985, he has conducted independent research into the geometrical basis of modern science and new technologies. Dr. Gilbert has studied multiple world spiritual traditions extensively with advanced information from key systems integrated into the Vesica trainings. Dr. Gilbert has over 25 years of study and practice in the original European Rosicrucian and Holy Grail traditions. So the structure for today's event is going to be Andreas, First, discussing the harmonics of neural annealing, which consists of using psychedelics to raise uh, the energy levels in the brain and reducing stress and changing the neural structures in the brain. Then we're going to move, off to, move to Dr. Gilbert, um, who will introduce the harmonics of energetic healing and specifically talk about the new science of biogeometry, which is a science of incorporating angle, proportion, number, and geometry for the maintenance of the biological life force of organisms. Biogeometry is also called a phys physics of quality, a vibrational-based science founded by an Egyptian architect, Dr. Ibrahim Karim. Biogeometry has been used for the harmonization of EMF and emotional and mental balance. So in terms of the time, it's going to be 30 minutes starting with Andreas, then moving to 30 minutes presentation from Robert. And then we move to a free flowing discussion moderated by me between Andreas and uh, Dr. Gilbert to explore any connection or any points of commonality between their work. Then we move the discussion to the audience for any questions you guys may have. Again, thank you for being here. We really appreciate your presence and I hope you guys enjoy the event. So before any further ado, let's start with Andreas giving us a presentation on the harmonics of psychedelics. 
Awesome. Hello, everybody. <laughs> can you hear me all right? Yeah, we can hear you. Perfect. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. So we're going to share screen. Try this already. Hopefully it works. <laughs> okay. So uh, can you guys see this slide? Okay, fantastic. Well, okay. So this is a yeah really fun event uh, for me. Uh, it also gives me the opportunity to essentially be a little bit more speculative, kind of like try to go to the frontier of my understanding and try to communicate some kind of like high level insights and see where it goes. Uh, I titled this good vibe theory, which is, uh, yeah, essentially trying to get the, um, yeah, I mean, epistemological ontological foundation to get at, you know, a future potential very, very rigorous science of good vibes, <laughs> like really taking this seriously and see where, where that takes us. So I subtitle it is as, yeah, speculative proposals for a physics of consciousness from psychedelic thermodynamics to a Huyen's Fresnel principle of consciousness, which we're going to see what, uh, what I mean by that. Uh, so first of all, um, essentially, like, the in the ideal world you know after this presentation you can look at these very trippy you know dmt replication images meaning uh you know attempts at recreating the dmt visual component and be able to like grasp new you know non-trivial meaningful things about these images and understand it okay I understand that there's like deeper meaning here and I understand how some of it works and how some of it would kind of uh, create a sense of reality that is very different than our, our normal sense of reality. Um, and uh, hopefully it will provide like principles to kind of like be able to interpret, you know, these, these kind of uh, patterns and structures. Um, so the talk is actually, you know, there's kind of like two targets, two target audiences for a lot of people, they will be the same, you know, the two kinds of audiences live within a single person. Uh, for some people, you know, maybe the first part will be for some people, second part will be for, for other people. But essentially, the two kind of like target audiences are, you know, kind of like the, the vibe engineer, you know, very grounded. It's like, okay, like, how do we technically try to create good vibes? And then the other kind of like target audience is uh, the mystic is like, okay, but how is this related to kind of like the deep, deep, you know, insights and uh, truths of wisdom traditions. How do we connect that with uh, a physics of consciousness? So hopefully they will, you know, they come together ultimately, but uh, they, there is kind of like two distinct components to the presentation. So first of all, kind of like more the, the technician. So I'm going to kind of like uh, pick your interest with a teaser for kind of the formal model that we're working on at QRI for making sense of essentially like psychedelic experiences and other exotic states of consciousness. Uh, the very first is essentially just kind of like a, uh, uh, you know, like a review of something we, we've seen in, in previous presentations, but just, you know, to kind of like get you up to speed. First of all, you know, in physics and in consciousness, there is this very, very strong duality between the shape of things and the way in which they vibrate. And so, you know, if you have like this square shaped metallic plate, it has its vibratory modes. And that has to do with all the ways in which a wave can fit an integer number of times in the shape. And, you know, there's like a discrete number of possible vibratory modes, uh, which could be called these, you know, its eigen modes or its resonance, resonant modes. Um, 
and this shows up all all over the place in consciousness. The second component <laughs> is this idea of energy. You know, like a, a lot of yeah, uh, yogic traditions, a lot of meditation traditions. Let's say uh, Vajrayana, they will say like, okay, one ideal outcome of you know mind training is that you will have more energy, and it's not just you know energy in the sense of like you know feeling <laughs> feeling uh, happy because you you drank some coffee or something like that. It's much deeper, you know. It's kind of like this like psychedelic energy that energizes whatever you pay attention to and can do all sorts of interesting, powerful effects. Making an analogy with physics, I call these the Hamiltonian of consciousness. So just to give you, you know, a very broad idea, the Hamiltonian of a system is how do you add up together all of the components of that system in order to get to a total energy score of the system. So in the classic example, you have like a pendulum and the Hamiltonian of the pendulum would be potential energy plus kinetic energy. You know, and, and if it's uh, in a closed system with no friction, essentially those two quantities always add up to the same thing, which is the total energy of the system. When it comes to consciousness, the Hamiltonian of consciousness would be how you add up all of the tiny sensations that you have and you weight them by their intensity. And then you get a, a total score, which kind of like tells you how conscious you are. <laughs> so if you're like on LSD or DMT or like in a meditation retreat and your visual field is very bright and you have very strong emotions and your feeling of space and acceleration is very deep, you know, that score will be higher, right? Because like your, every pixel in your visual field has higher intensity, you know, its weight is higher. You add up all of those factors together and you get a higher Hamiltonian, a higher energy level. And the thing like this energy level is really, really crucial. And it's absolutely essential to understand spirituality, to understand psychological transformations. Um, and it's you know, going to be a recurring idea in pretty much <laughs> all of my work, all of our research, this energy, energy component. Um, and to give you an intuition, you know, kind of like if different shapes have different energies, uh, essentially, as you go down in this visualization, the energy increases. Why? Because the curvature and the complexity and the amount of surface area increases as you add more circles and you start to connect them with minimal surfaces and so on. And so essentially, you know, the shapes that you were to see on DMT, uh, the higher the dose, the more they will start to look like the ones underneath, uh, because they're going to be more complex. There's going to be more curvature, more tension wrapped up into the experience. Um, and something that I've talked about before is this idea of energy sinks, that the reason why on a DMT trip, things tend to congeal or kind of uh, crystallize into things that are both symmetrical and have semantic meaning is that both of those elements are energy sinks. They kind of like take the ambient energy and they absorb it. And essentially, internal representations that you've seen before kind of like absorb the energy that comes often from uncertainty, but in this case, it could be really just, yes, psychedelic, psychedelically induced. Um, but what I'm going to present to you now is a bit of a conceptual clarification on this idea of energy sinks because it's somewhat confusing and the confusing thing about this is that um even though i say that these internal representations are energy sinks 
subjectively, if you're on DMT and you see like uh, an interpretation of, of, a, of a shape, you will notice that it's actually energizing to you. It actually kind of radiates out its own energy. So what's going on there? Why are they energy sinks if they're radiating out energy? So the very important conceptual clarification comes from this framework we're developing, which is PRI's psychedelic thermodynamics. Um, and essentially, the, 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 the main thing to realize here is that there is a direction of energy flow. You know, this is kind of like a thermodynamical system and sensory input, as well as background noise, both energize the field of consciousness. But once the field of consciousness is energized, it can absorb that energy by transforming it into internal representations, essentially gestalts. And recently we've been calling them uh, solitons for reasons that have to do with connections with physics. And essentially, um, from the point of view of the background noise, these internal representations are energy sinks. But from the point of view of the field of consciousness, these internal representations are energy sources. And I think like that is a very important yeah, conceptual clarification that one man's energy sink is one man's energy source, right? Depending on where, how the energy is flowing. <laughs> so to give you kind of like this very high level perspective on psychedelic thermodynamics, the energy flows from sensory input and background noise to the field of consciousness. And there it actually gets trapped for a while through a feedback process. And then the energy also gets released in two ways. One is in motor actions, you know, like one way you can relieve tension is by moving. Uh, essentially, motor actions function as a, as a kind of like energy dissipation, but also just outer field radiation. I mean, just, you know, meditating on equanimity without doing anything, you're radiating out the energy on, on its own. You don't need to do anything to radiate out the energy. It's just faster <laughs> if you move or, or if you release that tension purposefully. And so, you know, kind of like overall conceptual framework is, yeah, like energy flows from left to right, uh, senses are stimulating, uh, surprises is stimulating. This has to do with predictive coding, uh, free energy principle. Life is stimulating. Just the fact of being alive generates this background noise. You can see it in EEG as kind of the, the pink noise that is always present no matter what, <laughs> as long as you're awake, as long as you're, you're kind of like awake and, and conscious, you're gonna have this uh, background noise. And the gestalts, the solitons, interpretations absorb background energy and they radiate out a vibe. And the vibe they radiate is shape dependent. It actually depends on the shape of the representation, what kind of vibe it has. And here's where the whole connection with, you know, Kiki and Booba, you know, very uh, sharp, spiky internal representations will radiate out spiky vibes. Whereas very soft and uh, round internal representations will radiate out kind of like booba, very, very soft, very soft vibes. Um, and so uh, the way in which, you know, the overall kind of like valence, the overall quality of the experience, the texture of the experience arises here is by how the vibes of the gestalts interact with one another. So when something feels off, you know, something feels weird, you don't like something in your experience, within this framework of, you know, conscious thermodynamics, there's one of four things that is going on. First, it could be out of phase with the input. You know, maybe you have a pretty good internal representation, but 
if it's out of sync with the input, that itself is going to be a source of dissonance. B, it could be incompatible with a noise signature. This is going to be a lot harder to realize, but let's say like, yeah, like something that feels good in a certain kind of mood or state of mind may actually feel very discordant in a different mood or state of mind. And that, that has to do with like what kind of background noise is energizing the resonant modes of that gestalt. Three, the shape itself could be misshaped, you know, itself, no matter if everything else is in coherence, if the shape of the gestalt is discordant, it's going to radiate out discordant vibes, and that's going to be negative valence. And the fourth reason for something feeling off is when it's dissonant with other gestalts. So here is where the whole idea of a music theory for consciousness <laughs> comes into play, that you need all of the internal representations to be in tune with each other for the emergent, you know, global field to be in a state of harmony. And so, you know, the, I think this can allow us to essentially diagnose like what kind of problems a particular experience has. Um, and also just to demonstrate another application of this framework, um, let's say uh, input effects, like what makes an input feel good or bad? Well, it depends on whether it is consonant with the background noise, the gestalt and the radiation, and the bound field and its radiation. So essentially, you can diagnose, you know, like if you, there is a particular source of dissonance, what are the possible causes and what are the possible remedies? I think this framework can be really powerful for, for that purpose. Okay, now switching on to <laughs> the mystical perspective. And now this is, I think, hopefully this is going to be kind of a mind-blowing to some of you. Essentially, I'm going to take something that is talked about in sacred geometry a lot and try to still man it and say like, hey guys, actually this might actually be true <laughs> in a way that is much, much deeper than anybody realizes. <laughs> and this is the idea of, um, you know how, this is a, a very common idea in, in, in sacred geometry. Um, I'm not sure who is the primary source of this idea. I would love to find out, but I've heard it in a, from a bunch of people. Uh, one person who expl explains it pretty well is this channel. I'm sure many of you have seen it. It's called Spirit Science on YouTube. Um, where essentially they talk about how you can get the flower of life, you know, kind of the, the arrangement of uh, hexagons uh, and circles out of this idea that there is, you know, spirit, kind of a universal consciousness that looks at itself. Okay, that, that's kind of like the, the, the central concept here. It starts out at a point, then it advances a certain, you know, because it doesn't have a way to break the symmetry when it moves, it's going to move in every direction, right? Like before there's any structure, there's no other way for it to move other than in every direction. So it moves one step in every direction that forms a circle. Then it stands at, at a point in that circle. And then it again, kind of like makes the one measurement, the one unit measurement advances kind of like one unit. And then you have two circles intersecting. And obviously, this is a very important shape, uh, I'm sure, by for Robert and many other people. And if you iterate this over, you get the flower of life, or I think like the seed of life. So um, let's think about this as kind of like a metaphor or, or like, like something pointing to maybe a very deep reality. So what, what, what is this? So in, essentially, Feynman and Wheeler, two very, very famous physicists, one had a conversation online about, uh, sorry, <laughs> on the phone, <laughs> on the line, on the phone, uh, about um, the idea that there might just be one electron 
in all of the universe. And this is because uh, essentially when an electron and an anti-electron interact, they merge, they cancel out and they form a photon. There's one way of thinking about this mathematically as the electron is bouncing off a photon and then moves backwards in time. And an electron moving backwards in time is the same mathematically as a positron, as an anti-electron. So in this idea, there's only just one kind of observer of all of reality, and it's bouncing backwards and forwards in time, interfering with itself. Okay, I think let's let's take this very, very seriously and see where it leads us. So the first thing to point out is that in physics, there is a duality between not only waves and particles, that's kind of like a fairly known concept, but also between fields, thinking of quantum mechanics as fields, versus thinking of it as a superposition of all possible paths. They are mathematically equivalent. You know, this has been proven, you know, solving the Schrodinger equation, which is a field activity, gives the same answers as taking one electron or one photon and making it go through every possible path and then uh, superimposing all of those paths simultaneously. And then the superposition pattern of those essentially gives you what the entire you know electron actually does is kind of like the sum total of all possibilities these two are mathematically equivalent right so you can kind of like see the field as a superposition of paths and see a superposition of paths as a field and okay connecting these with kind of the, the one electron well the one electron and the field can be thought of as the same it's just you know whether you think of it as superposition of paths or kind of a smooth smooth field evolving according to the Schrodinger equation. Now, very, you know, briefly, this field, uh, in many cases, actually segments out, it, it breaks into pockets. And this is not just a, you know, theoretical, hypothetical thing. It's actually a very, very real thing with very significant real world implications. And the most straightforward example of this is with um, solar flares and coronal mass ejections into the sun. I believe there was one very recently, uh, maybe a couple of days ago. And essentially, here's a case where the actual topology of the magnetic field changes through a process known as magnetic reconnection, where before you had plasma trapped in these tubes, <laughs> in these, in these uh, tube fluxes that then get opened up and slingshotted into outer space. Um, you know, this is called a coronal mass ejection. You can see it has kind of like this pocket. Usually there's a pinch point that arises and it traps, you know, huge amount of uh, plasma and, uh, and electromagnetic energy gets just ejected out of the sun. Um, so here's like just an example of like, okay, topology really matters, right? This is not just a theoretical thing. Like, like my gosh, it can destroy the electrical grid, right? It's like an absolutely real, very, very significant thing macroscopic and everything. So I think it's, a, it's the hypothesis at QRI is that the thing that kind of like creates a boundary around your experience is actually a topological pocket. And within it, within that topological pocket, <laughs> you would have a field. And then the question arises, which is, what does it feel like to be that field, you know, that topological pocket? Well, then we move on to the view where that field is equivalent to all possible paths within it. Okay, so 
what does it feel to, what does it feel like to be a pocket in the field maybe it feels like exactly as what it feels like to be every point in that field knowing about every other point <laughs> because essentially it's kind of like how all of those points interact with one another gives you the entirety of the shape so within it it's just a collection of you know interactions of the one electron with itself that gives you a a shape for the experience so the hypothesis here is what it is like to be the one electron in a topological pocket is precisely the superposition of all possible points of view that exist within it um so this view gives you i think you know something that mystics have talked about for a long time and i think it's completely true and that is the idea that the screen of consciousness is actually not fundamental. It's, there's not a primal thing, just as space and time is not like a fundamental thing, it's an emergent thing. And the screen is actually a special case that requires a lot of trickery. It requires to have this field shaped <laughs> in such a way that it looks like there is a screen from every point of view, or at least from a lot of those points of view, a very large percentage of those points of view. But that's an illusion. Actually, there is no screen. And there's a lot of states of consciousness where there is no screen. So you know it's not a, a primal, you know, fundamental thing. Um, and, you know, if you're the one electron, uh, you know, you would have to explain also, like, how you can be simultaneously all of these people at once. I just took this screenshot a couple of minutes ago, <laughs> um, sneakily put it into, into the presentation. Um, a very fun video to watch. Uh, it's more, more of an entertainment, but maybe spiritual for some, some of you is this idea of the big electron uh, that George Carlin and, and Bill Hicks kind of uh, talk about. This is a, a fun music video. But yeah, I mean, essentially, yeah, the big electron is explaining kind of like the fundamental observer, the, the unified field of consciousness for all of us. Okay, so if you look at it, you know, again, like kind of this, uh, the topological pocket view, um, electron orbitals are actually their own little topological pockets as well. Essentially, there's a, a potential that prevents the electron from escaping. And so it has to actually interact with itself, you know, in this pattern of superposition. And that pattern of superposition gives rise to the shape of the orbitals. So the question is, what is it like to be an electron orbital? <laughs> Well, they're really crazy and often like very symmetrical in all sorts of ways. Um, but the claim is that, okay, if what it is like to be a pocket of the field is what it is like from every point to look at that pocket, then actually whenever you find symmetries, you know, this is a very important insight. Whenever you find symmetries, you will find points of view that look the same. So let's say if you are a sphere, from every point in that sphere, the rest of the field looks exactly the same. So it all collapses into the same point, right? So when it, whenever you're perfectly symmetrical, <laughs> actually it looks the same from every point of view. So you collapse into the same point. So whenever there is symmetry, the dimensions collapse. That's like a very crazy kind of like observation, but I think <laughs> this may help elucidate what is going on on like LSD, for example, where like sometimes you can become a point you can become a plane or a line. There's very strange things. And I think that has to do with the fact that now you have symmetrified yourself within the pocket. And as a consequence, a lot of different points of view look exactly the same. So they collapse into the same point of view. 
and here's where it gets even trippier. This is the idea uh, that essentially, um, you know, remember the wave particle kind of duality? Well, there's this principle in physics called the Huygens Fresnel principle, which applies to waves in general, linear waves, which is that a, a particular wave front is mathematically equivalent to having a point source at every point in the wave front sending its own spread of waves. So this is a visualization uh, like this. So essentially, we have kind of a, a front. Every point in that front will emit its own waves, right? And then you add all of them together, and it's mathematically the same as the exactly just that wave front moving along. Uh, here's another. I really like this visualization because it shows you like, okay, the more, you know, the limit, the more points you have that you add up their waves, it starts to behave as a single wavefront, right? So my claim is that every point within the pocket is actually sensing the rest of the field the, within the pocket. And whenever they are in coherence, this very, very strange thing happens, which is that it cannot be distinguished whether they're points or whether they're a wave because they advance as a collective wavefront. As a consequence, <laughs> whenever you have resonance, whenever you have essentially uh, standing wave patterns, it is sort of the case that the one electron knows very well kind of like when it is happening, but it doesn't know where it is happening. And there's kind of a deep connection here with Fourier transforms and the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which is that, you know, if you are in a very high level of coherence, you will know your frequency very, very accurately, but you will not know your location. <laughs> and there's an inherent trade-off between those two. There's, you, you cannot like, kind of like know the location and the frequency perfectly. But with this principle, essentially what you get is that the shapes that you see on, let's say on DMT or these advanced states of consciousness, when they are resonant, you know, when they're resonant, when they're coherent, they will emit waves of awareness that are in phase, are coherent, and are kind of equivalent to a lot of points simultaneously kind of sensing their environment, right? So it's very strange. The, the patterns on DMT are not just like 3D patterns. There's something far, 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 far deeper. They are coherent witnesses. They're kind of like waves of witnessing that are in coherence. And as a consequence, whenever you have symmetries on DMT, they function as witnesses of the scene. So as a consequence, okay, so this is kind of a, maybe it's kind of like all of this is boiling down to kind of like this very important insight I'm gonna present, which is that when you're in a highly coherent state of consciousness as in psychedelics or meditation or various ecstatic states of consciousness, you can decompose the state as clusters of coherence, you know, and I've talked about as like DMT as competing clusters of coherence. Well, when you have clusters of coherence, each of those clusters functions as a coherent witness that are, is measuring its environment. Uh, and this is predominantly happens is kind of the low information content and, you know, intermediate energy level. That's where you will have like the most <laughs> clear skeletons of coherence. Uh, just some examples of states where like this is very clear. We have what's called um, the symmetry hotel, where 
is a dose of DMT where like every two-dimensional surface looks like a coherent symmetry group. In that level, every wall, every surface will function as a witness of the scene. And as a consequence, every time you add one of these symmetry slabs, you're going to create a new frame of reference along which to make sense of the experience. Um, you know, everything gets tessellated in, in things like that. Whenever you have these kind of tessellations, you have exactly what I was expl explaining, which is coherence, right? Where the one electron doesn't know where it is, but it knows very, very, very accurately its frequency, the frequency with which it's measuring its environment. Um, and the other very, very clear example is the crystal worlds, which are kind of like between magic eye and waiting room. And this is where like the witnesses are three dimensional. And again, you know, they, they, there's a question of like, are these like external entities or internal entities? If you just think of them as the one electron in phase along three dimensions, you can think of it as well. Yeah, they are a witness of consciousness that is interacting or embedded within your consciousness. Um, and, uh, you know, as a consequence, you can kind of describe a state of consciousness as a network of coherence, you know, like which frequencies at which uh, level of the hierarchy are coherent with one another may explain the state. And remember, every time you have coherence, you have a witness that is sort of doesn't know what it is, but it knows very accurately what frequency it, it has. Um, and what I love about kind of like this perspective is that it gives you the possibility to kind of like understand the zoo of possible self-organizing principles that arise on something like DMT, which is you know, I love this artist, uh, Symbolica, you can fi find it on uh, Etsy. But essentially, you know, every one of these shapes would be one way in which a coherence network can crystallize. It's like, well, are the low level features in a state of coherence? Or is it a high level feature? Is it a fractally coherent? And so on. Uh, this is just kind of like a, some, some zoom, or is it like a hyperbolic network that can also be a, in a state of coherence? That's, that's not a problem. Uh, or mirror rooms, you know, mirror rooms are extremely common on DMT. I would claim that as soon as you have coherent symmetrical structures, you will have a mirror rooms. Why? Because each surface emits a coherent witness that will reflect off of the other surfaces. And so it essentially functions like light. I mean, it may actually be light. I don't know. <laughs> but at the very least, it functions like light in that like the coherent witness bounces off of itself uh, in, in the various surfaces. So you know, mirror room experiences on DMT are super common. I think the, the Huyen-Fresnel principle for consciousness would make it, would explain this quite, quite uh, parsimoniously. Uh, importantly, whenever the self and other collapses, uh, there's usually a symmetry at play. And that is because whenever there is coherence, um, the, 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 the wave that is essentially perceiving a surface and the wave that is coming back from the surface are the same. They're in a state of superposition. So essentially the self-other collapses. Whenever there is coherence, there is going to be a collapse of the self-other duality. Uh, so again, like on DMT, actually, it's very, very crazy because each slab doesn't have a self-other duality, but it generates a kind of witness for the rest of the experience. And yeah, it's very strange, but like it, it kind of changes our model of reality. Uh, okay, I'm about to, to finish. I'll just mention... Yeah, like uh, you can find kind of like points of coherence in your energy body by looking at what regions of your experience are such that if you pay attention to it, 
it's a wave that comes back in phase. And so that is one example of a kind of like possible coherent witness for your experience. They, it gets massively multiplied on psychedelics, but that's just like, okay, even when you're sober, you can identify these uh, coherent witnesses. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you just, again, like think of this uh, kind of witnessing, coherence of witnessing in complex DMT experiences, essentially what I'm claiming is that every one of these patterns of symmetry is functioning as kind of a frame of reference. And by multiplying all these frames of references, you will get what is the actual dimension of the experience. And sometimes it can be very, very high dimensional. And I think that can be still meant, it can be made very rigorous, and hopefully we will find <laughs> concrete experimental evidence of this being the case. Um, and uh, yeah, just to kind of like wrap up, uh, whenever you're having kind of an amazing, crazy experience like these uh, superposition of waves or a toroidal experience, what I'm claiming here is that actually it's something crazier going on, which is that from every point of view within the experience, it looks like there is a torus. <laughs> but it's actually a holographic torus. It's just like the pattern of interference of the electron interfering with itself. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, just to conclude, practical applications of this is that you can combine neural annealing and psychedelic thermodynamics in order to diagnose, you know, what is the source of a negative vibe in your experience and identify, hey, is this like because the gestalt is incompatible with sensory input, uh, or is it because it's misshaped, or is it because it's incompatible with the current noise signature or with other gestalts? Um, and uh, yeah, kind of like to add to the QRI paradigms, you know, we are kind of like building up this framework of psychedelic thermo thermodynamics. And to conclude this new concept coming soon, I'm gonna be producing a lot more content about this, but this, the concept of neural field annealing, which is that whenever you treat your nervous system as a field via probably heavy learning, it will start behaving like a field. And so, you know, the more you treat it as a pattern of superposition of waves, the more it's going to kind of have that as kind of its uh, background self-organizing principle. A very, very clear example of this for me was uh, when I was experimenting with body vibration. I um, played 40 hertz every day for 20 minutes for a couple of weeks. <laughs> and I stopped that experiment because at some point I started having sleep paralysis where I was like stuck in a enormous 40 hertz vibration realm. So essentially, yeah, if you treat your nervous system as a field a lot, it will start to behave like a field. So gotta be careful with that, but <laughs> very connected with mental health. All right, uh, and yeah, this is it. Uh, Please feel free to check out our website, QRI.org. And uh, yeah, I want to thank uh, uh, Kenneth and uh, Ali and uh, everybody here. And uh, yeah, hopefully very happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much. <laughs> Dr. Gilbert is, is ready. We can have Dr. Gilbert. Okay, great. Thank you. Let me work on my share screen here. Let me Okay, Ali, are you able to see my screen okay here? Okay, great, thank you. So I'm going to focus on the idea following up on the introduction that we just had with this idea of the wave-based universe and about the way that psychotropic experience is actually a breaking open of human awareness to be able to perceive the wave-based universe rather than the particle-based 
understanding of the world that is so dominant today in our modern culture and in modern science. So the basic concept here is that the foundation of physical matter is actually waves. And as Andreas was saying, there's the famous double slot experiment, which demonstrated that we can look at reality as being either particle-based, like the particle of light type of experiments, or as wave-based, with light being a wave. It's interesting to understand that every time that modern physics talks about light, that in many classical traditions, it's understood that the way that consciousness expresses itself outwardly is as light. You know, let there be light is the first action in the uh, early Jewish tradition that was so important for the Western tradition. And light then is understood as being the external expression of the consciousness field. So you'll see these lighted auras around the head or the entire body of initiates in traditions all over the world. Light is a sign of, of awareness, of consciousness. And so this particular slide illustrates the issue that in physics, it's well understood that we live in a wave-based universe, but in many other fields, including in medicine, because part of our topic today is healing, that in medicine, we have not taken into account at all the concept of everything physical is based on the crystallization of waves. So this is mostly because of the influence of, I believe, the pharmaceutical industry, where they have to pursue a particle-based understanding for medicine, or else their entire pharmaceutical, who knows how many billions or trillions of dollars it is at this point that they make every year, will just fall apart. Now, as evidence for how important waves are for health and illness, there's the little-known experimentation that took place in the 1970s in Russia by Kaznachev. Now, this was following up on the earlier research from the 1920s with Alexander Gurvich. And he had demonstrated that there are certain forces related to life activities that emanate as waves from living beings. So this was followed up in Russia, and they were able to demonstrate, and this is published in the book that you see here, the book by Lieutenant Colonel Tom Bearden of the U.S. Air Force, that's entitled The Excalibur Briefing. And he talks about the publication of this Russian research in which they had two cell cultures. One had a deadly contaminant, the other one was uncontaminated. And when they separated the two with no ability for any particle transmission, there's no air transmission completely sealed between the two of them, no particle transmission, that when they were separated by a glass screen, that nothing happened to the second Petri dish. But if they were separated by a quartz screen, glass, as Alexander Gervich had shown, actually cuts out the ultraviolet part of the spectrum. It cuts out part of the transmission of waves, in other words. But the quartz window will send all the waves through. And they then found that although there was absolutely no possibility of any particle transmission, the second Petri dish will pick up the exact pathogen that is in the first Petri dish. And this has to be through pure wave transmission. Now, this absolutely upends our entire concept of health and illness today, because it's very, very true that illnesses may be spread, as it's said today, through various types of particle transmission, but it's completely ignored that illness or health can be spread through wave transmission. 
So wave transmission, is, as demonstrated here, as proven here, is actually at the foundation of all health and illness. This upsets all of our understanding of health and will take us past a particle-based pharmaceutical paradigm into what is referred to today as energy medicine. Andreas also was kind enough to introduce for us the concept of cymatics. Now, the literal definition of cymatics is the science of wave phenomena, and we know it through the experiments that use primarily sound waves and use the sound waves to structure matter. So they'll put the sound wave into a liquid or into a paste or a gel or something of this kind, sometimes even fire, a plasma. And they'll then immediately see that based on whatever is the frequency of the invisible wave, the physical matter will immediately form into a different structure. So cymatics is the demonstration that all physical form, all physical structure is a direct revelation of the background energy waves behind it. So with this work coming from the cymoscope developed by my friend John Stuart Reed, who's in Britain, he's been able to demonstrate that he can take 4K or higher resolution, even three-dimensional images of these waveforms and how they are then constructing matter into specific shapes. So this is, again, the basic idea that the waveforms are structuring matter, but we could go even further and say that waveforms are crystallizing energy into matter in the first place. Now, at the bottom is a wonderful illustration of recent work done by John Reed, where he was able to actually image the waves coming from a healthy cell of the human body versus a cell of the body that had been infected with cancer. That's what you see at the bottom here. So now he's developing a new method to where we can do potentially even some types of medical diagnosis based on the actual waves themselves, rather than what we do today, which is mostly chemical analysis of blood or various types of bodily liquids. We could actually test the wave itself, which comes before the physical manifestation. And you can see how beautiful and symmetrical and coherent is the healthy cells energy wave, whereas that of the cancer cell is beginning to break down and become chaotic and discordant. Now, this is from a wonderful book in German called Von Wiesen des Wassers, which means from the being of the water. And it shows what happens if you put a drop of lavender oil in water. It creates this beautiful image that you see on the right hand of the screen right here. And so, that's not something that you would see actually physically at a macro level in the lavender oil, but it's actually showing you this picture on the right-hand side is taken through incredibly high magnification of the water. And in incredibly high magnification, you can actually see what is the wave impact coming from the lavender oil, that it creates this beautiful lemniscate pattern that you see here. So it gives you the sense of the wave impacts and the structural impacts coming from things like essential oils. You could do the same thing potentially with all types of healing modalities with energy medicine, like it's chronic healing or Reiki or things of that kind. Another wonderfully gifted friend of mine is Professor Gabriel Kellerman, who uh, teaches in Romania. So he also works with cymatics and has worked on finding the combination of frequencies in physical material that will generate the things that we see 
at the macrophysical level. And he understands that this is all based on sacred geometry. It's all based on particular archetypal movements of energy. So on the left-hand side is a beautiful illustration he did showing how the archetype of the human face is coming from the original sphere, spherical form of creation, and then adding in these counterclockwise rotating movements that become the foundation of the eyes and the nostrils and the lips. Now, he didn't leave it at that, although that itself was a beautiful demonstration of these core concepts. What you see toward the right-hand side of the screen is that he was able to actually, using specific frequencies put into liquid materials, he was able to actually create a human face. And it shows the way that even the human face, what we look to to identify the uniqueness, the beingness, the expression of a human soul and spirit, that that is actually a particular set of waves that gives rise to then the settled physical form of the human face. And I find this absolutely amazing, really incredible work that he could, through standing waves, generate the human face. This is really where I think science today is going. This shows how, on the left-hand side, toroidal forms of energy movement bring the sphere into motion and activity. And on the right-hand side, he's showing his analysis of mitochondria. The mitochondria is, of course, the energy powerhouse of the cell of the body. And this incredible illustration, I'm actually going to be making posters of this available on my website, vesica.org, as a way to help support the research of Professor Kellerman in Romania. But you can see here where it's got all of these different types of toroidal movements and spiral vortex movements. And in a sense, the physical matter within the mitochondria that we can physically see is to create a shape basin, a sink for the actual dynamic energy movements that provide energy in the human body. So the physical shape is really a after effect of the original thing, which is the energy movements. Now, we're going to return to this a little bit later when we get to biogeometry, which is all about the science of energy movements and shape. But I just want to point out here that, once again, the core concept is that in psychotropic experience, we're opening up our sensorium to be able to perceive the wave-based universe, which is full of all types of energy movement patterns having to do with spirals and vortices and the torus and all of these classic types of patterns. So this is a beautiful ayahuasca visions image showing this upward spiral of movement. And again, what you will find, and this is where I started my work now over 25 years ago, I was identifying the links between what was described in spiritual experiences and what had been identified as particular shape information in modern science and technology. And you can find that one-to-one -one link. Again, the fact that people are now perceiving this directly in psychotropic experience is a direct demonstration that they're perceiving these vital energy flows of the waves that give rise and crystallize everything in the physical world. Now, with the, sci the cymatics, uh, of course, this has been applied now for healing work, where it's referred to as cymotherapy. So we can put together particular sets of waves that will have a highly therapeutic effect on the human body. I'm very fortunate to be able to work with the person who inherited the original cymotherapy work from Dr. Peter Guy Manners in Britain, which is my friend Mandara Cromwell in the United States. And she has now 
brought the cymotherapy work to a level that it can actually be used in a person's home and not just in a clinical setting. So one of the secrets about this type of healing work that was discovered by Dr. Peter Guy Manners, an osteopath in Britain who invented cymotherapy, was that it's not enough just to hear the sound for the full healing effect. You need a transducer in contact with the body to drive the wave from the sound into the structures of the body. Not only that, one particular sound wave is not sufficient. It also found that he couldn't bring back the full resonance needed in the body with two or three or four particular waves. He found that it required five waves as a coherent set, as a coherent code. But when the five waves come together, they have incredible effects for restoring the core wave frequency in the body for all the differentiated systems in the human body. So we created over 750 different complex sound codes to be able to create all of these fantastic healing effects. And that's what you see here using these new home models that you can get with cymotherapy. Then what you see here is that in a very short period of time, this person with 10 years of progressive inflammatory pain, and of course, it's well known in the literature that when you see these types of thermography studies, a woman has this type of heat in the lymph glands under the uh, underarm and around the breast, that this is well understood as a precursor to cancer. And in a very short period of time, just by applying the waves to the human body, nothing physical, no pharmaceutical, just waves, you're able to almost completely take out, the, and thermography proves this, the inflammation that leads to the health effect. So again, this is the healing aspect of this. The wave universe is the source of health and illness, and it can restore health and illness faster than anything in the physical world can. Another demonstration from cymotherapy. The top left here, it shows a 95% tendon tear in a horse. And normally they would just, they say, this isn't reparable. We're just going to kill the horse. We're going to, or as they say, euphemistically, we're going to put the horse down because it can't repair it. So without any physical intervention whatsoever, applying only the correct waveforms through cymotherapy that can have the function that were identified as having the function of allowing physical tissue to heal itself, that within a few weeks, you see what is shown on the top right, that that 95% tendon tear has been completely 100% repaired and no scarring, no adhesions, total regeneration. And like I say, these things are now available uh, to people to use in their home. Previously, it required years of training and to get it in a clinic. So the latest model is the AMI 850 that does all these different types of functions based on the sound codes that have been researched now for well over 50 years. And uh, I have more information about this on my website, vesica.org. Uh, I just don't have the time to get into it here, but I want to make people aware of this, that cymatics is the study of wave phenomena, and cymotherapy applies that wave phenomena for incredible healing. And now it's, now it's on the market to use even at the home level. Very few people know about it, though, but it's really amazing work. Now, another approach to the working with the waves is rather than working with the sound waves or the more subtle waves that you find in some parts of energy medicine, you can also work with the electromagnetic waves themselves. Now, nowhere is this shown more 
convincingly than in the work of Dr. Robert Becker. So Dr. Robert Becker here, his two books are shown on the left, The Body Electric for How the Body Construction Heals Itself Through Electromagnetic Waves and Cross Currents for the Danger of Man-Made Artificial Electromagnetic Waves, which can cause disease rather than healing. And so Dr. Becker worked at the Syracuse University VA Hospital until he was fired for speaking to Congress about the health effects of certain types of electromagnetic waves that the government and industry didn't want him talking about. But he did incredible research for years. And what you see here is his patent on the right-hand side. And what he's, he's done here is a man has had most of his finger cut off. That's what you see at the bottom left. And through applying just, again, specific waves, directly electromagnetic waves into the body, he shows he is able to actually completely physically regenerate the finger on the man. That's the basis of his patent. And he actually illustrates it here. And note that by the end of this process, in just a matter of a few months, he's been able to completely regenerate the finger, including with a fingernail. So again, this should be, why isn't this on the front page of all the papers? You know, this happened decades ago. We never hear about it because the people that are in charge of our health today, our healing, don't want anybody to be involved with this type of work. It takes away all of their profits. But this shows the incredible potential of working with the wave-based universe. There's other bodies of work happening today that are increasingly identifying all of the specific wave qualities that are going to create these types of effects. And so the work of Carolyn McMakin with what is called frequency-specific microcurrent, I highly recommend it. It's an advanced medical system. The devices are not sold to the public. It requires extensive online or live training. There are other things that are easier to do that you can more easily apply for yourself in your home. And I'm in the process of writing that up and it'll be on my website very, very soon. And you can access that. But in this frequency-specific microcurrent, they have identified pages and pages of the specific electromagnetic frequencies that create all types of biological functions. And what they're able to achieve is absolutely miraculous. But these fields have to be very careful about even talking about it publicly because regulatory authorities, everything but the money and the power is not supporting this. It's a completely different paradigm. But for your own health, I highly recommend you look into this. Now, when we understand if it's a wave-based universe, we have different wave sources that are coming together to create complex interference patterns. Now, that's the foundation of creating a hologram with the whole idea that was very common a few decades ago in esoteric circles, people talking about the holographic universe and the holographic paradigm. And so we get this idea from what's known as projective geometry, that you get the, these types of matrices like you see on the left. And this actually then gives the matrix to crystallize matter around the energy field. This is also shown on the right-hand side of the illustration from a projective geometry textbook that with the, the rays, the waves radiating in from the periphery in their interference patterns, they're creating the hologram or they're actually creating a crystallization pattern, like how a crystal is, is formed into physical matter. Because if you look at most of modern science today, if you say, how is a crystal formed? They'll say, oh, it's formed from the unit cell. It's the smallest component and has a particular shape 
and then it generates it again. So all of the unit cells are the same shape. And then when they all come together, the crystal has a particular shape as an aggregation of the unit cell. And if you then ask them, well, how does the unit cell get the shape? Then what they'll always say is they'll try to dismiss it with a with an empty concept. They'll say, oh, it's self-organizing. Uh, uh, self-organizing? Where's the organization come from? Well, it's self-organizing. You're not allowed to ask that question. But self-organization is nothing other than the organization of the interference fields of the waves. But that's not how they were trained. That's not the paradigm that they want to promote. But of course, we see the exact same thing with the matrices behind all physical creation that's commonly seen in psychotropic experience, like here in this very famous painting by Alex Gray. The matrix is everywhere. So people talk today about, you know, there's a, a flaw in the matrix and we live in the matrix. The matrix is nothing other than the wave universe that's behind everything in the physical world. And behind those waves is consciousness. So it was understood in classical spiritual traditions that all of the higher levels of existence are microcosmically reflected into the human body and the energy fields around the human body. You find this in traditions all over the world. So common images of this are like things on the left-hand side of the screen, where you have the person's body and these multiple subtle bodies around it. So you have the physical body, then you have a body of vital life force immediately around that, which is called chi, ki, prana, ether, depending on what ancient traditions language you're using. And then you have the highest higher consciousness fields dealing with the what we think of as emotional function, mental function, then getting into a spiritual level to where actually separate beings are formed out of the universal soup of waves and consciousness into conscious beings and spiritual beings until you reach the divine level. And at the divine level, everything is one. Everything is what in physics is called the singularity. It's all the one unified field source. But it's important to understand that classical traditions, in many cases, understood psychedelics as being a substance that expands your etheric life body, your body of vital force, the chi ki prana, outside the boundaries of the physical body, so that when the etheric life body expands outside the boundaries of the physical body through the effects of the psychotropics, that's what opens up these clairvoyant, visionary experiences of the wave universe. That's the actual function in a larger sense, but it's been sadly forgotten today, but this is actually extremely important when we're talking about how this reflects in the human being. Because at that point, as you open up to the wave universe and you start to see how the waves create coherent structure of consciousness, and so things appear to us as structures and conscious beings, and as Andreas has pointed out, the higher you go in the experience, the more it appears to be beings in these particular things. Now, if we work with this in a practical way, as many classical traditions have done, one of the most important models is the threefold model of the human energy field. So you have the what the Chinese call the upper dantian, the upper elixir field of consciousness in the head. You have the middle dantian, the middle elixir field in the heart and the center of the chest. And you have the lower elixir field, the lower dantian in the lower abdomen. Each one of these three things is specialized for different functions, more of the vitality being expressed in the lower abdomen, more of the emotional activity in the center with the heart, more of the mental activity in the center in the head. 
but this also becomes the foundation for various types of practical esoteric exercises taught by many classical traditions. And so the three-dimensional world is based on a three-axis cross. These are the three axes of physical space, like you see in electrical engineering, that these are three lines of energy, each at 90 degrees to the others. It's the literal definition of the concept of a three-dimensional world. And so this is understood then to create the three-dimensional cave inside the human head that's called the cave of Brahma. So if you have the line coming from heaven to earth, going through the central channel of the body, connecting to the horizontal line, going through the two hemispheres of the brain, linking the two hemispheres of the brain, and then front and back to the front of the third eye tunnel, to the back of the Ajna center, as described in the Hamalias, when those three axes to isolate and to hold in place a structure for consciousness in the human head are fully activated, then, as in the upper right, you will then see the activation and the glow, the light coming from the head that you see in all these types of psychotropic experiences, all types of religious imagery, things of this kind. But it's also incredibly important to activate the heart powers. So in ancient Egypt, their form for a star in hieroglyphic texts is the form of a five-pointed star that you see in the image to the right, I'm sorry, the image to the left on the upper right. And so this is something I talk about in my Gaia TV series on sacred geometry, that this Egyptian form is actually created through the emanations of the heart streaming out to the five peripheral points of the human body. And so another major part of psychotropic experience, one part is that you feel an incredible opening of consciousness. And for the first time, somebody's turned on the lights in your head, and you understand that the lights around the head in these spiritual images are not a metaphor. There's something you directly experience as the lights come on in your head from the psychotropics. But the same thing happens to your heart. And people talk about my life changed from this psychotropic experience because I realized how dead my heart was. And now my heart was illuminated again. My heart was active again. And at that point, people cry. They, they shed all types of blockages and armoring. And they actually open up to other people. They open up to the entire universe of life as you see in the right-hand side illustration. So the activation of the head center, the activation of the heart center is absolutely essential in this process of us opening up in the psychotropic experience to the wave universe and directly perceiving it. This is also very important for opening up the center in the lower abdomen, but this requires a bit more description than I have time for here. So what we deal with today, to get a structure for what are we really talking about, Today, all of our modern technology is based on the identification of two specific spectrums. These spectrums form the foundation of all of our modern science and technology. The first was the discovery of the electromagnetic spectrum. You see this in the bottom right illustration. So all of our modern electronic gizmos are based on identifying the electromagnetic spectrum. So we know what part of the spectrum is going to work to power the home power 5060 hertz in our home electrical power? What do we need to use instead of the radio frequency and the microwave range to be able to create cellular communication? What do we need to use in the x-rays range to be able to actually see through solid matter and see what's inside of it? So we identify the electromagnetic spectrum, and then the level above that is the physical level. And the spectrum of physical matter, we call the periodic table of elements. 
periodic table of elements needs to be understood very clearly as the spectrum of matter itself. So all of our modern technology is finding the right type of matter to hold the right part of the electromagnetic spectrum, and that's all of our devices. But the problem is it left out everything above that. Let's take a look on the left-hand side of the illustration. This is from Dr. Ibrahim Karim's work in his book, Biogeometry, Back to a Future for Mankind, where he shows the different planes of nature, the different parts of our own internal structure that also exist outside of us in the wave universe, because we are nothing other than one crystallization fractal of the entire wave universe that's become independently conscious. And so we have the physical, the vitality, the emotional, the mental, and then higher spiritual levels there. In the biogeometry from Egypt, we know what the actual sacred geometric shapes are that act like antennas to connect to each one of these different planes. And so directly above the physical, the electromagnetic is actually below the physical. It is actually that substructure of the physical with the waves at the more gross electromagnetic level, what Nikola Tesla called retarded Hertzian waves. But above the physical, there's other waves too. It's what Nikola Tesla called the scalar waves. And says those are the real waves. People forget that Nikola Tesla said that, and he developed our whole modern electromagnetic technology. But above that is what we deal with, with the chi, ki, prana, ether, all the dynamic vital life forces in every classical tradition. It's only been forgotten in modern times. Thousands of years before is the basis of everything. And so that was identified as a spectrum by French researchers in the 1930s. I have a lot of resources about this. I have some videos on YouTube. I have a lot of stuff on my website, et cetera, trainings. But just putting it all together here, there's another spectrum that we're going to have to deal with based on a spectrum of qualities that we can use to identify all of these energetics that are perceived in psychotropic experience. And that we'll need to be able to identify when we're working with the science of actual wave phenomena. In fact, this type of spectral analysis is a higher level of the electromagnetic spectral analysis we do today. What you see at the top right is an illustration of spectral analysis of the elements of the periodic table. But at the bottom right is what the French developed as the universal vibrational spectrum, the spectrum of subtle vital forces that are too subtle to be picked up by electromagnetic equipment, the level above the physical, not below the physical. And they were able to use this back in the 30s to be able to identify the subtle waves coming from all physical phenomena, and based on the band of energy it appeared as, they knew things about it. So depending on what band is being emitted from water, you can tell if it's pure water or mineral water or bitter, salty water, water with animal particulates in it, too much ozone, tainted, carcinogenic, radioactive, chemicals in it, bacteria in it, all through a type of subtle energy analysis made possible through the French breakthroughs in the 1930s, but nobody's heard about the French research. So when they talk about these 12 bands of energy in the universal vibrational spectrum above the physical, we can identify that using the modern tools coming from biogeometry. At the bottom right, we see an image from one of these tools from Egypt today that allows you to tune in based on angle, the specific invisible wave quality that you then will know will have a specific functional effect when it is present. It does a specific thing. Just like in frequency-specific microcurrent, they can tell you what specific biological effect these different electromagnetic frequencies have. And so when they say something like the orange band, that may seem opaque to us, but it's already been mapped that we know that the orange band can stimulate the lungs. It clears the kidney and bladder. 
It clears the colon. It removes blood clots and cysts. This is all based on energetic research done over the last hundred years. At the energetic level, it expels waste, toxins, germs. It's purging, loosening, extracting. At the emotional mental level, it promotes joy, happiness, ambition. It overcomes sleepiness, depression. At the spiritual level, it's used by highly advanced initiates to be able to help a dying person literally extract the spirit from the physical body at the time of death. So this is a huge science that exists already that we can access, but is very little known. If we go back to ancient Egypt, the Egyptians knew all about this. These are the things that people find so mysterious about the ancient Egyptian work, that behind the pictures on the temple walls, like you see on the top left here, was always a grid, a matrix that they laid down before they created the image. On the top right-hand side, they represent this in the form of a flexible, malleable net. Some of you may have seen me describe this in my Gaia series as the uh, masters of the net lineage from ancient Egypt. And today, that same net is the matrix of space-time that's described and illustrated in modern physics. That's what you see at the bottom right. So we need to understand the Egyptians were on this 5,000 years before modern physicists, if not before, in understanding these principles. Now that brings us to the modern science of biogeometry developed by my dear friend and mentor, Dr. Ibrahim Karim. And so when we define what biogeometry is, it's nature's own creative language of shape, sound, color, number, angle, proportion. Every one of these are ways that the wave universe can express itself in things that we can perceive physically. Every one of these is a separate scale of quality. You could work in nothing but proportion and get all types of energetic effects. Nothing but the scale of shape get all kinds of energetic effects. You could be nothing but a sound healer and through sound be able to access all these different energetic effects. Be a color and light healer and access all the different effects just in that part of the quality scales. Now, what Dr. Kareem did is he went past the French research where they identified these 12 different bands of polarized energies, which you see in that color wheel at the bottom metal here. But all of those bands of energy create different functions in the world around us. Some are activating, some are sedating, some are yin, some are yang. But Dr. Kareem says we have to go back to the original ideas in ancient Egypt. What was the symbol for a ra'ah, the netter of the sun? It was a point in the center of a circle. And so you have to look at what is in the center. And so in the center of any manifest form, anything that's crystallized into physical space from the waves, the center of every physical form is what Dr. Kareem calls a transcendental gateway beyond space and time. And he means that absolutely literally. And so the point in the center of the circle is showing us where the one is beyond the duality of physical crystallization and the physical plane. And we can use tools like those developed by Dr. Kareem, like the BG3 pendulum shown on the left side of the screen, which actually has the shape and number components to be able to detect the energy of the center. Dr. Kareem found that this was an energy that could balance and harmonize all living energy fields. And it's the foundation of what we teach people to do in biogeometry trainings today, to be able to harmonize and balance all living energy fields with people, animals, plants, the environment, home, office, whole thing, by how to access these different bands of energies, these wave energies, and to apply them consciously, like they did in ancient Egypt, but in a modern context. And again, there's all types of different ways that we can tap in, as you see written on the screen here, 
that we can tap into these energies, but I don't have the time to go into them right now. So we are an, a living energy being that's open to all the energies of our environment. And the key concept to have is resonance. Resonance is based on sympathetic resonance. Objects can vibrate together at the same rate. Resonance is an exchange of energy and information. Two living energy systems exchange energy and information through resonance. And you can establish resonance through colors, shapes, motions, etc. We can also link two energy systems together through the power of human awareness. And what we think of as true love is actually the power of resonance and linkage and combining two energy systems to sympathetically vibrate and resonate together. Now, we have to understand that this resonance takes place in a multidimensional universe. On the right-hand side, once again, we show you the image from Dr. Kareem's biogeometry work of the multiple levels of our wave universe and the way that certain geometric forms in the hidden knowledge of ancient Egypt were used like antennas to tap into that level of structure. It can be used to tap into a level of a person's own internal functioning at that level, but it's something we teach people to do in the biogeometry advanced training. But it can also be used to tap into that energetic in any environment. In fact, in any physical object of any kind, you can tap into the levels of it that exist. And on the left-hand side, we show the way that this is all based on a world of compression waves, some that are slower than light and some that are faster than light. And those that are faster than light are those that we refer to as metaphysical. Now, this means that if we're going to connect in resonance energies across these multiple dimensional levels, that gives us the idea of harmonics as we use that concept in biogeometry. Harmonics is the key to connecting energy across dimensional levels. It was taught in the Egyptian temple science to Pythagoras. The same archetypal scale or spectrum of energy manifests in each dimensional level. Resonance can be established between the same energy quality at different dimensional levels. And the model we use for this is a piano keyboard. Piano keyboard has the notes of the musical scale. But after they've gone through one complete series of musical notes, they return again. You have the C note at the base of the piano, but then after you've gone through the note, C appears again, and then it appears again, and then it appears again. There's a hidden relationship between all those C notes, the same quality on multiple octaves, the same way as there is a hidden connection which can be activated between the energy quality of the 12 bands or that energy quality of the center called the BG3 in biogeometry in multiple dimensional levels. So when a person is doing blessing and prayer, they're creating resonance with very high spiritual and divine levels. There's all types of hidden ways that we create resonance from physical plane level into higher levels. That's a huge topic in itself. I can only start to introduce it here. We go into great detail in the biogeometry trainings. Dr. Green was able to demonstrate the power of this with things like the Egyptian National Hepatitis C Research Project. He had already identified the movement of the waves inside of the organs of the human body that creates the function of that organ in the body. And he created hundreds of these biosignatures, which are simplified, flattened, two-dimensional representations of the original three-dimensional form of the energy movements. He then flattened them into two dimensions, printed them onto, as you see in the middle top, 
a chip to be worn for the hepatitis C research project in Egypt, or like in the top right, the way we make the medallions today. But in the Hep C project, people with very advanced Hep C were given nothing but the medallion with the biosignatures showing the energy movement patterns that activate functions in the human body. And they wore that for six months and they got no other treatment, no pharmaceuticals, no nothing. They had the best results of all of the test groups in the Egyptian government's hepatitis C research project, much higher than anything else, much higher than interferon, which was at a much lower level of efficacy. And with side effects, there was a 90% normalization of enzyme levels for people who wore nothing but this medallion, this pendant, and it had no other treatment. So I'm not making any medical claims for this. This is what was actually released by the head of the dean of the pharmaceutical school at Al-Azhar University, one of the oldest universities in the world in Egypt for the Egyptian government. That's what put biogeometry on the map. Now, there's many other incredible research projects that I talk about in my YouTube videos for biogeometry, and we'll get much more into it in the biogeometry trainings. Same thing with Dr. Dr. Kareem was able, through changing the wave vibrational constituency of salt water, that salt water, which normally would be impossible to use to grow plants, he could grow plants in pure salt water straight from the Red Sea, which has very high salinization, by putting them into containers where they would be infused with specific waves that we know how to work with in biogeometry. And then you see what you see on the left-hand side. Grown with fresh water, sweet potatoes grew naturally. With salt water straight from the Red Sea, didn't grow at all. With the salt water, no salt taken out of it whatsoever, but infused with these waves, they grew even better than with the fresh water. It shows that the wave is primary before the chemical constituents. That's theoretical today, but it's absolutely a fact. Dr. Kareem has used the same knowledge to be able to bounce electromagnetic fields over entire cities, which he did in Switzerland, in Hamburg, Switzerland, and Hersburg, Switzerland. This has already been demonstrated. It's already been figured out. It's what we teach people in the courses. Now, Dr. Kareem has a public book that I recommend, which is Back to a Future for Mankind. It's been out for a few years. It introduces you to everything in biogeometry. And they had just published like a few weeks ago, a book he's been working on for a decade, Hidden Reality, The Biogea- Biogeometry Physics of Quality. And it's all about this inv- invisible wave universe that we live in and how we can consciously work with it for all kinds of incredible things. So we've been very fortunate that when COVID cut out all of our live trainings, we were able to move to an online format. So now I'm able to teach biogeometry in an online training with information on my website. And so we're doing the next foundation training coming up in June, if anyone's interested. And that's where we teach you to to detect the incomplete universal vibrational spectrum, to detect and manifest the harmonizing power of the center, balance the human energy field with biosignatures, all of these things. Then you get into the advanced training. Now you're working with the multiple planes of nature and being able to test or apply energy on any subplane of the planes, which also means different subtle bodies of the human being and their subdivisions. And so we'll end up here. My website is www.vesica.org. And I'm in the process now of publishing a summary of key information on my website for 2023, my new 2023 resource guide covering all these different topics, waves of health and illness, cymatics, cymotherapy, biogeometry, precision frequency healing, microcurrent therapy, all these different types of things. About half the articles are already available for free on my website, and the other half are being constructed now and will be up very, very soon. 
So that's my presentation. Thank you very much. I'll turn it back over to you, uh, Ali. Now move to a free-flowing conversation between Andreas and Dr. Gilbert. We have about 20 minutes for the free-flowing conversation and about 15 minutes for the questions. So I'll open up the conversation. If you, Andreas, if you can start us off, please. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. No, this, this, this was fascinating. I think we definitely find kind of a point of intersection in the, yeah, the whole exploration of uh, consciousness as waves. Uh, I, think, I think like there's definitely something very real, very, very real there. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh, maybe how you think of, yeah, kind of like that, that perspective of, uh, the one electron universe or like maybe coherence in, um, in kind of witnessing, uh, anything of that sort. Very curious if you have like any thoughts on that space. <laughs> uh, my own thoughts with it really go back to the fact that really virtually every classical tradition and so many people's deepest psychotropic experiences all go back to at the highest level, we realize that we are one fractal of a much larger structure and that everything goes back to the one. At all higher states of consciousness, all higher states of energy, one can experience unifying our consciousness and our unit and our own energy field with another being and about what that state is. When I trained at the Clair Vision School of uh, Australia, with a French medical doctor who had worked with the, the Babaji lineage in, in India and with the Kriya Yoga lineage, he talked a lot about this concept of combinescence, that living beings can actually, outside of the physical body, consciousness and energy can combine together to look like one thing, and then it can separate again. The whole purpose of creation then being to be able to, at will, unify with others into combinescence, going back to the one, but also having the freedom to separate back to a separate fractal with free consciousness, free activity. That's the purpose of this whole crazy thing that we're caught up in the middle of at the moment. And so the, the essence of everything is the one. But then if you follow classical cosmology, like Chinese metaphysics, the one, the Wu Ji, splits into the yin yang. Now it becomes masculine, feminine, light and dark, uh, the yin yang polarities. And then it turns into more bifurcations until you get the 10,000 things of Chinese metaphysics. So I think you'll find expressions of this in only slightly different language in traditions all over the world, and also in some cases supported by modern scientific research and physics concepts, like what you're talking about, like there's only one thing to begin with, whether we call it the one electron, or we call it the one consciousness, or the one being, that's up to your to your perspective on things, but it's one thing <laughs> that then creates everything else in a incredible process to be able to experience itself and to be able to have a type of evolution that could not be done if you just stayed in a immobile center and never moved out of it. It's that breathing process from the center to the periphery, the center to the periphery, the one to the many that creates this incredible, beautiful evolutionary process and all of the things that are the most delightful in human life, as we learn to deal with all the things that are not delightful in human life. Amazing, amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm curious uh, in, in that context. I mean, it, so it sounds like you, yeah, you do agree with kind of the, um, or I'm curious to hear your thoughts on like, yeah, like that 
rendition of kind of the the flower of life and like interpreting it as like the spirit taking one step and then looking back at itself what are your thoughts on that kind of like metaphor or way of seeing yeah yeah thank you for the question you know it's absolutely fundamental to the work i do because i called my institute the vesica institute which is the point where you move from the one to the two but you still have the one in the overlap between the two and the vesica in the middle so I think the foundation of all this, you have to look at what is the original circle or sphere that is the one that starts everything out. And so you have to start with a zero-dimensional point. In modern three-dimensional and even hyper-dimensional theory, you've got the original point that's zero-dimensional, has no extended physical space. So in physics, it appears as the singularity that became for all physical creation was the singularity. Everything was in that one thing. Now, what that one thing does, if it expands out in an even way in all directions, you create the sphere. So the point in the center of the circle, which you see in all the classical traditions, and I showed it on my Egyptian slide as the first image on an ancient Egyptian ruler, the first thing they showed you is the first act of creation in the ancient Egyptian ruler is a point in the center of the circle. The point is the singularity, it's our connection to the one state. And if it expands outward to create a container, a grail cup, to hold all creation inside of it, it creates a perfect sphere. The sphere is the perfect form because every point on the perimeter is equidistant from the center. And the center is the transcendental gateway beyond space and time, as Dr. Kareem says in Biogeometry. It is the divine plane. It is the state of oneness. Now, once you've got that, now you've got the first structure. You've got something manifest and created as the first circle or the sphere. Then, if you then... Let's think of the egg in a mother's womb. It gets fertilized. What happens? It creates a vesica split. The one original cell splits into two. And that then becomes the basis of all further creation. So that's the first movement. Now we've moved from the one state to polarity. Now there's light and dark. Now there's masculine and feminine. Now there's yin and yang. And we have that because these are going to be attracted to each other or repelled to each other according to polarity, just like two bar magnets, where they're repelled or they're attract. That gives movement, that gives evolution, that gives activity. And so at that point, we've got the vesica with two opposite polarities, with freedom in the part of their structure that does not overlap the other, and love and unity in the connection of the vesica where the two overlap perfectly, just like a perfect relationship between human beings. You've got half of you that's a free, independent being, and half of you that can then merge in beautiful oneness with your partner. And then at that point, as you then create more things, the one becomes the two, the two becomes the three, the three becomes the four, you're now manifesting more structures, which then manifest what people call today the, the flower of life. And then that becomes what people call today the seed of life, etc. Probably had different names in the ancient world, but that's how people know it today. And so that becomes a spherical matrix. So what you find in sacred geometry is a series of different matrices based on different shapes. And so the circle becoming the vesica, becoming the flower of life, and then expanding outward is a spherical matrix. Then there are other types of matrices based on triangles, squares, pentagons. These form the platonic solids, etc. Amazing, amazing. Uh, I think, yeah, well, while I have you here, and I know we're going to split into uh, questions as well, but uh, one thing that's definitely up uh, <laughs> off, the, off the top of my head is um, uh, I remember seeing in a video uh, you're trying to distinguish between uh, when you think 
that you're receiving some kind of communication or message from another entity versus when you're actually receiving like there's kind of like it's important to discern between projection or like your own projections versus like actual communication i wanted to bounce off this idea from um i mean essentially a lot of people have reached out to me like trying to explain what it is like to get like a message from a entity on dmt and like why why does it feel so genuine and authentic and like not a hallucination and i think that it's kind of like a recurring experience that people mention is that when you enter in contact with a another civilization another entity there is a clear moment where it feels like you're tuning into a vibrational mode where they vibrate in a very specific way and it feels like it's not your vibration like it feels like it's a uh, it's not even your own aesthetic right like they may have like a different conception of beauty <laughs> they might <laughs> you know like different patterns and so it's like what feels so alien and strange is like wait this is not beautiful according to me why why would my brain be generating this i i wonder if you have any thoughts on on this and like yeah the resonant frequencies of uh, other entities <laughs> yes so the initial concept is the one about there's a certain process of reversal on in what spiritual traditions call the astral plane it's referred to as astral mirroring or astral reversal you see it on some of the egyptian temple walls being very clearly represented this reversal process so what happens in certain states is things that you are projecting outward will appear to you like they're coming to you from the outside like an alcoholic in delirium tremens who is like going through withdrawal and they're seeing these horrific figures coming toward them but in some cases those horrific figures are things they're projecting out of their own field that in this astral inversion look like they're coming toward them so every classical tradition that deals with consciousness development says this is what you have to be aware of in the beginning you got to be aware of the reactive mind you got to be aware of various types of projection you have to be aware of what your monkey mind chatter is constantly generating and not taking your monkey mind chatter being reflected back to you as a real living external reality because otherwise it completely consumes you and you're caught in reactivity but it is possible to move past that through the clear mind state so that's things like in the ancient world things like vipassana transcendental meditation you know zen these are all things about just getting a clear mind state that you're not generating a bunch of madness in the mind that's going to get reflected back you're in a clear state at that point from the clear state now that you're coherent now you can tune into other consciousnesses other wave patterns that exist in the world around you as authentically existing other consciousnesses that exist around us so i believe that in psychotropic experience many people do access very directly contact with non-physical realities non-physical beings something outside of them that often has a much more advanced consciousness than they do sometimes things of a less advanced consciousness where they appear as all kinds of weird things basically what in the ancient world they would call elemental beings now may appear as some type of weird dwarf robot talking to you or something like that but this is then opening up to that very deep knowledge of classical traditions about all the types of beings that live in the spiritual world around us and we're like fish living in water that don't know we're in water we are beings living in a spiritual universe all around us and we don't perceive any of it until we open those doors of perception like Aldous Huxley talked about so it's all then about being able to train the mind clarify the mind you find this in all the classical traditions then you can get clear mind state stop projecting out your own crazy chatter 
And you can then tune in to all the information and beingness that exists in the universe. Now, I'd like to ask you a question, too, because one thing that I found so fantastic and amazing in your work is the, I can't even imagine the amount of work that went into this. Were you able to identify the stages of the DMT activity as clear stages and how they correlate to specific types of things that are being perceived? That is incredibly valuable because I believe you can't have a science of anything until you have a spectrum of the activity. And then you know where you are in the spectrum. You found that spectrum for DMT. I'd love to see you take that further to see to what degree that's applicable to other psychotropics so we can have a better mapping of what psychotropics are activating what types of functions in the development of human potential. There's some of that now, but I think it could be taken so much further. I think your work is a fantastic foundation for that. Really just so important. And also for myself, because I understand things uh, in a comparative sense. That's how I started out by looking at the sacred geometry taught by ancient traditions and how the exact same patterns were empirically rediscovered in modern physics, biology, and chemistry. And so here, when I talk about the classical idea of here's the physical plane, here's the plane of vital life force, here's the emotional astral plane, here's the mental, here's the causal, here's the spiritual, here's the divine, different names and different traditions, but that's what it's called in Western metaphysics today. I think there's a type of correlation there to the stages of the psychotropic experience and the thresholds of dosage that you talked about. At a particular level of dosage, you will hit a particular level. It may be possible to tune our experience to going up toward the vital force level or the emotional level where people have all their emotional purging or the mental level where their mind really opens up to the spiritual level where they're now perceiving in forms of beings because you've shown that movement through these stages and what you're communicating with and what you're seeing and then potentially the ultimate experience in all psychotropic experience, which is the oneness, that you are one with everything. So I do think there's a correlation between that classical model and what you found in empirical research with the levels of the DMT experience. So I just love to hear any of thoughts that you have about that. Yeah, no, thank you. I really appreciate uh, that, that you, you really enjoyed that research. I mean, like the, the whole kind of like set of insights started where like a very, very great mathematician contacted me back in like 2016, I believe, who had been exploring LSD in particular, and essentially just like in sensory deprivation, cataloging what are the symmetry groups that would appear in their visual field. And this is just like starting with like two dimensional structures. And like, that's where like, oh my gosh, like, it seems like every one of the 17 possible symmetry groups can be instantiated as kind of like part of the psychedelic uh, symmetries. And, uh, and that was like, wow, like that means that actually whatever mechanism underlies, you know, resonance and consciousness is fully general. It's not constrained to some symmetries, but it can actually generate arbitrary symmetries. And, and for me, that was like, okay, like I haven't seen this reported anywhere. This seems like an important finding. <laughs> I started writing about it. The DMT uh, insights came later, kind of like building on top of that. And one of the very early kind of like indications, and a lot of people, you know, very, very good mathematicians, physicists have like mentioned these when they explore DMT, is they consistently find that the vibrations on DMT are higher frequency than LSD and also than most states of consciousness. And they're higher frequency in the sense of both temporal frequency, as in they vibrate very, they flicker very fast, 
and also they're high frequency in the sense that they're very detailed. I mean, actually on DMT, the detail that you see on the center of your vision, which is called the, the fovea of your visual field, can actually spread out to the rest of the visual field. Like you can have like a peripheral visual field that is as detailed as what you're seeing in front, like at the very center. And that that is a lot of information, right? Like there's a, you can <laughs> pack a lot of information in a visual field with that level of resolution. Uh, and, uh, and there is clearly a progression that is very mathematical. And I think like maybe one way of understanding it is kind of a, a combination of both of the Hui and Fresno principle that I was talking about, how like coherent waves are in some sense kind of the dual of having a lot of points simultaneously emitting a wave. There's kind of one component, but then the other component is the dimensionality of the experience that as on the early stages, you just have like these two dimensional symmetry groups, symmetry slabs, as I was talking about them. Mm-hmm. But in higher mm-hmm. dose, you essentially have like collections of them and each of them functions as a kind of witness, meaning that you have multiple frames of reference for every point. And so it is effectively, I'm pretty sure, like a higher dimensional state of consciousness. I don't know how or why that might enable communication with our other consciousnesses, but it, it would seem to me it would have something to do with um, generating a regular hyperdimensional space that maybe functions as an antenna. I mean, I, I don't know, but it's, uh, it does seem to be like that getting a certain dimensionality allows for like strange, you know, entity contact experiences. And if you don't get to that dimensionality, the entity contact experiences don't happen. So like, I think there's something to do with the dimensionality of consciousness, um, kind of like functions as a gateway or like as a necessary requirement. I think that's great. And I want to just follow up on that a, a little bit with the way that you're perceiving the when you talk about higher frequency, lots of times in metaphysical circles, we say, oh, this is higher frequency than that. And we mean that in a more generic sense of like, the awareness is of a higher level, it's more clear, these types of things. I'm assuming that you're talking about higher frequency as a literal higher frequency being observed through brain mapping, and that you're seeing literal higher frequencies coming in, in areas of the brain that are being lit up during the DMT experience, versus the frequencies that are lighting up in the, like, let's say, an LSD experience. Huh? Am I understanding you correctly? Uh, there's two kinds. So first, yes, higher frequency in terms of neuroimaging and the work that is most relevant here is published uh, by Sun Atasoy and Andrea Lupi, who've looked at LSD and DMT and the resonant modes, uh, what's called a connective specific harmonic wave analysis. And that definitely shows that on DMT and LSD, you have uh, both a higher amplitude of the resonant modes as well as like higher frequency, like the average frequency is higher. Um, but the, the main thing that I'm focusing on is the phenomenology that like essentially the patterns are very detailed, which suggests like a very um, superposition of like higher frequency harmonics, as well as the flickering rate is higher frequency. So literally, you know, if you move your hand around on DMT, you will see a lot of copies of your hand kind of like hanging out in the air and they will be flickering at around like 30 hertz which is like really fast actually whereas something like lsd it flickers at between 15 to 20 hertz so like it's almost like dmt is like not only a little bit faster but it's like twice as fast <laughs> I, I remember seeing somebody on twitter pointing out that like dmt is like 
acid on acid or something like that. It's like LSD <laughs> on LSD. <laughs> and I think that's fairly accurate. It's like it's the frequency of, of, of LSD. It's so very noticeable how much more detailed it is. That, that's wonderful. I think that would be incredibly useful as part of the mapping you did, like for DMT, to then show the relative mapping and frequencies. I don't know if you have that currently written up somewhere in your literature, but if not, mm. then putting together what's currently known about it and what yeah. you could be funded to do to examine further, to create a real mapping of the frequency states of the different types of psychotropics, because now that it's being accepted so much more for different types of mental and emotional healing, people could know which particular substance was the best for the type of healing needed in this particular session. I think that yeah. would be so helpful. I think that's where we're going to. I also saw that in one of your slides, you talked about working with, I think it was a 40 hertz frequency for a period yeah. of time and how that affected you in kind of a psychotropic way. Yeah. And could I ask how you chose 40 hertz? And is that related to the concept of of gamma waves, like versus delta or alpha beta, was it a gamma type of idea you're working with, or what was it? Yeah, yeah, I can briefly mention here. So first of all, the the mapping that we do have for different substances is in a, in an article that is called uh, "Modeling Psychedelic Tracers um, with QRI," and essentially, yeah, that's where we quantify the flicker frequency of different substances, and there's like visualizations for all of the different substances. Uh, that said, we don't have as good of a map for like the the spatial component. Like, this is, would be like this, the, the temporal frequencies. But the, the spatial ones, we don't really have one other than for DMT and 5-MeO-DMT. Maybe they're like, you know, the most extremes. We took a look at those first. Um, but I mean, for a pattern that for sure is like very strange and difficult to explain is that entity contact really only happens on dmt uh whereas like lsd you know you can be like higher energy higher frequency relative to normal but you don't have the, these like tuning into <laughs> what feels like other consciousnesses like that doesn't happen on on lsd for whatever reason that suggests to me at the very least that there's kind of like a frequency threshold for like okay like maybe for interlock or contact with other consciousness you need like a threshold frequency and like lsd maybe just doesn't go as high uh, as that um and uh yeah i think like the the other thing is like yeah like um uh no doubt like certain kinds of internal dissonances will be addressed by using different frequencies so the way in which we have like shown that is with our work on haptic vibration and for that you can find on youtube exploratory haptic research at qri uh, we have like a an hour-long presentation about all of our research there and one of the things that we did there was explore 40 hertz we explored that because that's been shown in the literature that like okay yeah it is connected to gamma gamma uh, frequencies gamma uh, oscillations and also it is being used to, as an experimental treatment for Alzheimer's. So like we thought like, okay, this is probably an important frequency. Um, our, my overall impression was something like, if you are very dysregulated, 40 Hertz is actually very good, but it's kind of like a pacemaker. It's gonna like give something to help your nervous system organize around. But if you're already very healthy, if you already have like a lot of your resonances in harmony, actually 40 Hertz, might be kind of constraining it's kind of like collapsing the dimensionality of your experience and so I, I would advise like probably 40 hertz is great if you're very dysregulated 
but otherwise to don't do too much of it because then you're kind of like over constraining to that frequency and i think that's what at least in my case led to crazy sleep paralysis <laughs> involving 40 hertz okay wonderful thank you so much just a quick comment from me i i do know of people who have a strong background in uh, spiritual practices and meditative work who very much contact uh, non-physical beings and get information from non-physical beings doing LSD. So it may be a matter of the level of development that's been done cognitively by the person before they have the experience, whether the LSD is sufficient to get them to the contact state or not, because I know some people do have that experience. Uh, I also just want to mention one of my favorite stories from psychotropic uh, adventurers, which is uh, a guy goes to South America to do ayahuasca with a shaman. This is a true story. And the shaman gives him a bunch of ayahuasca. He gets way out there. He's wandering off into the jungle. And in the jungle, he meets these little illuminated beings, like very, very small beings. And they say, oh, we're here to tell you the big secret, that we're the beings that created the earth. We created the world. We created you. We created everything. The guy gets super excited. He goes running back to the shaman and says, hey, I met these beings who said they were the creators of the earth, and they created you and me, and they created everything. And the shaman acted completely unaffected by it. And he just kind of smiled and nodded and he said, yeah, they tell everybody that. <laughs> so at this point, I think I better turn it back over to uh, Ali to get a, a few of the group's uh, questions in before we have to end here. A really interesting discussion. So the first question is actually from me to Robert. Um, okay. How would you explain the, the biogeometry idea of the energy of shape? Because people tend to understand the energy of sound, uh, as in, in the case of music, sound, music affects your state of mind. But the energy of shape, people really have an obstacle to understand. How would you explain the energy of shape? That's a great question. So there's a particular <clears throat> formula that we use in biogeometry, which is energy into shape creates function. Now, to really understand what shape is, you have to take it from the way that we think of shape, because we think of shape as a dead, finished, inert thing. But the, we have to think of what is the forming process, the dynamic process that gives rise to a shape, and that's energy movement. So that's one of the most important things we talk about at the beginning of biogeometry. One of the secrets for understanding sacred geometry and classical traditions in a way it's not always understood today, and that is... If we think as energy as a particular manifestation level of consciousness, just like the chi, ki, prana, ether is understood as a separate level from these other consciousness state levels in many classical traditions, that that energy, if we think of the primordial energy, that primordial energy could become anything. It's like a stem cell. Stem cell can become anything in your body <clears throat> because it starts out as the one. The stem cell is the representation of the one. The one can become anything. And so for energy to take on a specific function, to take on a specific quality, to bring a specific divine power to bear, then that particular energy is put into an energy movement pattern. So to really understand shape, you have to see shape dynamically as an energy movement pattern. That's what stands behind the biosignatures. When we see the biosignatures from biogeometry, they look like little squiggly lines. But if you were to take it from 2D to 3D with these vortex and spiral types of movements, as it actually occurs in the human body, that energy movement pattern is programming the energy 
to perform a specific function of the heart, specific function of the liver, specific function of the pineal gland. It's all how that energy is put into a movement pattern. If you then look at that movement pattern and take a time-lapse photograph of the overall pattern, that's a shape. And so if we understand shape that way, as the dynamic process of tuning the energy for a specific function, that's what the shape really is. Um, is there any way to harness the, one, uh, the oneness energy? Could I transmit it into any environment I enter? Is it measurable? A question by uh, Mr. Bloom. Okay, is that one for, for me again? I think it's open to, to both of you, but I think it's, it's mostly uh, for you, Doctor. Uh, uh, okay, let me have Andreas go first. If you have something on that for more physical measurement, Andreas. I'll, I mean, I'll mention that, uh, interestingly, I think like oneness energy um, in, in the QRI model of psychedelic thermodynamics would actually be like in what way the f entire field of your consciousness can resonate with itself. And so actually like, you know, the shape of oneness energy is going to be specific to every particular individual because it's whatever reflects itself. Um, and so in that view, you may not be able to kind of spread just pure oneness energy to others because like you'll, you, you need to know actually what their shape is like. But the one thing you can spread that as a side effect would generate oneness energy is increasing impedance matching, essentially increasing the capacity for synchronization. Um, and the sort of states that come to mind are MDMA and uh, 5-MeO DMT and loving kindness meditation that essentially is not so much a particular shape, it's more the process of harmonization itself, right? It's kind of like climbing the gradient. <laughs> more and more. Uh, so that says like oneness energy is going to be specific to each individual, or you might you can bias towards a harmonization process, and that might feel like spreading oneness energy. Uh, I don't know, a little bit roundabout, but <laughs> hopefully I, I made myself understood. Wonderful, thank you. So <clears throat> this is a very very deep question about the methods to detect, analyze, manifest, direct that energy of the center. That's really what the whole biogeometry trainings are about. Uh, I'll just give it a very quick, a uh, couple of quick points with that. One is that in ancient Egypt, you find that they use particular types of tools as antennas to be able to pick up these different energy qualities. We think of them today as things like pendulums and rods. The rods of the Egyptian priests had very specific powers to work with these different energy qualities and frequencies, both to detect and to project. And then the same thing with the pendulums. But the thing is that if you go to the uh, archaeologists and say, well, show me the Egyptian pendulums. They don't talk about that. They label them all ritual objects. But all over Europe and elsewhere, they found all over the Valley of the Kings, these particular things that look exactly like a pendulum and are labeled ritual objects that at one point, huge numbers of people were using these in ancient Egypt. That's what was described by the French researchers in the 30s. That's what we talk about with uh, biogeometry today. Basically, it works as a type of free-hanging energy oscillator that when it couples sympathetically and sympathetic resonance with the energy quality it is meant to detect, the energy from that coupling will be read out as a rotational movement of that object. So what's referred to today as the Egyptian pendulum by the French, what they found in all these archaeological digs all over Egypt, 
these things, when you use them properly, you know how to activate them, you know how to tune them, then using the human energy field to activate them, they will show you when that energy is present or absent. We even have various types of energy measurement rulers based on old Egyptian designs in biogeometry that allow us to detect then the intensity level of these different qualities, particularly the energy of the one, the energy that comes from the center. So that's the whole thing of what's called radiesthesia, the ability to detect these subtle energies, too subtle to be picked up by electromagnetic equipment. Now, the issue with this is that standard electromagnetic equipment cannot pick up these energies because like detects like. And so something of a purely physical nature with some electromagnetic energy in it isn't resonating at that higher level of the divine energy, but a human being can. We have that in us. That little box doesn't. So the way that we can demonstrate an empirical effect from it, when modern science and technology doesn't want anything that involves human measurement, they only want machine measurement, is what you can do is you can create concentrations of this. We have all kinds of techniques in biogeometry to be able to create and harmonize creations of this divine energy unified field force and bring it into homes, offices, the human body, etc. What you do is you do before and after biological testing on a human body. So before the person's exposed to these energies, or could be an animal or a plant, there's been a lot of this research done, you test what the biological markers show. What's the level of the stress markers in the body? What's the various markers in the blood and in the saliva and in various types of hormones in the body? Then you expose the body or the part of the body to strong concentrations of this using the biogeometry techniques. After you do that, you go back and you retest it with main mainstream medical markers and see the changes in the biological markers. That's the way to demonstrate it to modern science and medicine by showing, because it doesn't work abstractly, it works in living beings. So you have to see this through testing biological markers in living beings. So I'll leave it at that and go on to the next question. During a psychotropic experience, we'd love to know more about Robert's pendant. I'm guessing it's obsidian and how the shape helps. This question is also uh, to Andreas, if Andreas has any points. Andreas? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, from the point of view of QRI, uh, uh, kind of uh, valence and structuralism and, and, and things like that, anything that increases impedance matching will smooth out your experience. So like, you know, practicing loving kindness, practicing equanimity, anything that essentially allows the kiki or the spiky uh, shapes to essentially dissipate as opposed to aggregate or reinforce each other will essentially be protective. So yeah, I mean, a lot of kind of like common, you know, Zendo, <laughs> Zendo wisdom of, you know, a very, uh, you know, cow a lot of, you know, like a, a very nice kind of like a pillows and couches and like, you know, mantras and essentially very, very soft stimuli to kind of increase impedance matching, reduce dissonance in general would be pretty good. Um, and yeah, practicing a lot of loving kindness. I think that's a very, very good recipe. Great. Thank you. Uh, I know we have very little time, so I'll just give a very brief answer to this. What they did in ancient world is that they would focus on naturally occurring sacred power spots. Now, what we call a sacred power spot, whether it's Giza Plateau, Machu Picchu, people going to the Sedona vortices, whatever it is, 
for their psychotropic experiences is just like in the ancient world, you go there because in a way, the definition of a sacred power spot is a place on the earth's surface that is naturally concentrating that energy of the one, that energy of the divine plane, that unified field energy. That's what makes it a sacred power spot because the earth has those points on it the same way that a human body has chakras and acupuncture points and meridians. It's the exact same principle. So a lot of this is to do it in a place that has the correct vibrational energy. You know, if you dose up on a bunch of LSD and go to the dark smoky bar at midnight where everybody's just projecting out the worst aspects of their id, you'll probably have a bad trip because your environment is not great. So that's like one of the most important things, the environment that you're in, both like the environment you're creating with music and friends and not having to deal with a bunch of crazy BS in the midst of your experience, like really basic stuff like that. Sacred Power Spot, if you can find it, and for people that have taken the biogeometry training, we teach them the methods to be able to create a sacred power spot energy in any location based on the ancient principles. The other part of it is getting yourself right. So you may not want to launch into a deep trip if you're in an extremely upset state. You want to get to some kind of level of, of balance. And a lot of this is, is having worked for a while on, there should, I think, be optimally some preparation before you do really heavy psychotropic trips of doing the basic self-help work of separating yourself from your thoughts and your emotions, observing them as if you're outside yourself and looking at another person, and with no reactivity, see what your actual destructive patterns of thought and emotion and actions really are. Once you can see that from the outside, like you're looking at another person, and can separate yourself from it, it'll massively help you to get keep out of reactive mind when you're deep in the psychotropic state. Because deep psychotropic state is like learning to be a surfer. You want to do a dosage that's just enough that the wave of the psychotropic experience allows you to ride on the surface at incredible velocity to go wherever you want to go, but not so much that you're a novice surfer somewhere in Hawaii where there's an 80-foot wave about to crash on you and going to crush you on the rocks below, and you don't know which way is back up to breathe air and get back to the sun when you're that deep in the water. So it's all a question of being able to ride it. And a big part of that is people getting over control functions, getting stressed about it. That's when you start to spin out of control. You know, you got to ride the snake, right? Just like they talk about ayahuasca things. You got to ride the snake. If you're not going to loosen up in that experience, it may go wrong. So that's a few things that I would point to in the beginning. Uh, very quick about, ask about the crystal I'm wearing. It's a, uh, actually, uh, a non-treated natural smoky quartz that's cut into a specific geometric pattern based on the work of Marcel Vogel, who's a person that created the magnetic coatings for hard drive systems that was the foundation of all modern computer technology. Marcel Vogel was an absolute genius with vibrational work and work with crystals. And uh, the smoky quartz has a particular effect of densifying the gene core life force in the human body. It helps to keep our energy coherent and to keep us strong. And I talk a lot more about what the actual energetic effects are from direct vibrational testing in the Vesica courses on vibrational powers of stones and minerals. And I know we're out of time now, so I want to thank you so much for the people at the Oxford Psychedelic Society. I want to thank you so much for uh, Andreas for joining us. Thank you for inviting me back, and I'll, I'll turn it back to, to Ali. Yes, thank you, everybody. <laughs> Thank you for coming to this event. It was a fascinating conversation, listening to Andreas and Dr. Gilbert. It was uh, enlightening to me. 
and it adds so much to my to my life. And uh, uh, right now we've passed 9 p.m. Um, Kenneth has actually dropped the link for uh, for, our, for if you guys want to donate to our society. There's also the links to uh, the YouTube channels where the recording will be available. Make sure to subscribe both to the OPS YouTube channel and on The Verge. The recording will be available on both channels simultaneously. So again, thank you all for being here. Um, so I leave it as that. At that, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Infinitely, thank you. everybody. <laughs> thank you. Brilliant, both of you. Thank you so much.